I became president, it occurred to me that uh, one of the most neglected topics seemed to be the sea uh, phase of the Civil War. And when I began looking into it, I, of course, there was only one man really to call, to call upon to, uh, to speak to us about it. I don't know how many of you have read the three volumes Civil War at Sea, but it's a grand book. It's the most exciting book, and well written. And if I go on, I'll come to tears. But Pat Jones comes to us loaded with credit. He's the most prolific writer. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with his Ranger Mosby and his Great Ghosts and Rebel Raiders. And I know most of you watched the Great Ghost when it was on television, which was an awful good show. He edited the Civil War Centennial Commission's newsletter 100 years after, which I know we all read. He is now the secretary to Congressman, to Virginia Congressman William Tuck. In my eyes, he's he's also a good Democrat, which makes it great for me. Good, good, great. Former Democrats, Democrats. <laughs> He's a former newspaper man of great stature, and of course you can go on and on. If you want to find out more about him, read his books and read the newsletter. And now I take great pleasure in introducing a great gentleman from Virginia, direct to us on this stage from Washington, Mr. Pat Jones. <laughs> Fine introductions, Jay. I might tell you that I'm not very choosy when it comes to introductions. I recall a story that I heard some years ago about uh, the late Senator Harry Byrd down in Virginia. He's gone down to dinner with the courthouse to make a talk on a political meeting. And they got their political hopeful and asked to introduce him. This young man got up and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, don't be alarmed. I'm not going to get up here tonight and bore you with a long speech. We have another gentleman here for that purpose. <laughs> so you let me off pretty late. I want to thank you for letting me come back here, and I want to tell you that you've given me a very wonderful welcome. The beginning of it was when I was met at the, sta at the airport this afternoon. I noticed that the Smiths in Chicago are a little bit larger than the Joneses are. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure to have such a bodyguard. He did not take me to Grand Park, but he told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I have always thought that the Chicago Round Table was the best one in America, and I still think. Next to it, I would put the one at Lexington. But you all certainly do a wonderful job. I want to tell you that I am a little bit reluctant to make any talk before such a group of experts. And if I get thrown out of here, I'll understand why. <laughs> I have picked a title like how, to, how Not to Start a War. But we'll come to that later. I'm going to use a few notes because I want to give you some dates and things to substantiate what I'm telling you. But I'll try not to lean too heavily on it. If you had asked me 25 years ago if I would ever write a history of the naval side of the Civil War, I would have told you no. And I would have been as emphatic as I could possibly be, because I'm not a Navy man. I've been to sea a little bit, but not very much. I'm a landlord. I get seasick very easily. 
And I will confess that some years ago, back in the 1930s, when I was doing research on Ranger Mosby, I happened to run across the official records of the Navy in the Virginia State Library of Richmond. And I thumbed through a few pages, and it occurred to me then that it would make a good story. But it was many years later, as you know, before I got interested in it. I was up in New York, and I had dinner with my literary agent, who was a very able man, writes books himself. He writes about the Revolutionary War, I write about the Civil War. But he told me, he said, there's a good book in the Navy, why don't you write it? And I said, George, I don't know anything about the Navy. And he said, you can learn. Then I came on back to Richmond, and within the week, the Navy Department invited me down for lunch. Admiral Eller, the head of the Bureau of Naval History, and some of his aides put the argument up to me. And I agreed to take a look at the Navy story. So I spent a week of my vacation in the Navy Library there on Constitution Avenue. And during that week, I made up my mind that I would write the story. I think it's a good story. As a matter of fact, I think you cannot understand the Civil War until you have read the Naval End of it. To show you what it means, I remember years ago, I used to think if Lee had won at Gettysburg, the South would have won the war. And when you read the Naval End of it, you see how silly that thought is. What would the South have done had it won the war with the more than 600 ships of around the block, around the southern coast by that time? That's a terrific Navy. It was such a Navy that I think it had a lot to do with England and France staying out of the war. Now, when I got through my three volumes, in my preface, I made this statement. The most common fault with naval literature, I found as I went about my research, is that it is caged in terms that are too naval. These, to the Navy student, are part of the catechism, to be rolled on the tongue in love, and to be injected into everyday conversation, to the average reader. The man who takes the Navy as the complement of the army and who gets seasick at the roll of an arm, they are objectionable. He gets the feeling that the Navy has a chip on its shoulder, that it is trying to sell itself to the public and striving to get credit for the job it is doing. This very definitely should not be the case. After I wrote that, I was told that I would be criticized for that particular paragraph. And I must admit that I was somewhat apprehensive. And then I got a letter, I'd written my thoughts honestly, and then I got a letter from Admiral John D. Hayes of Annapolis, who has more of the story of the Navy in his head than anybody else living today. And if you ever get him up here to make you a talk, I've never heard him speak, but I know if he can dish it out the way he knows it, that you'll get a wonderful talk. But I got a letter from Admiral Hayes, and this is what he said. I like the remark in your preface about the Navy carrying a chip on its shoulder and indulging in their own language and becoming impatient with those who do not understand it. I expressed this in a recent discussion in the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings. Navy people had better quit using such terms as sea power and start taking in words or syllables, start talking in words or syllables, that their countrymen can understand. Then we, will, then, we will, then we will not get into any more situations like, it, like the late Cuban crisis. Now he wrote this soon after the Cuban crisis had occurred, 
at the time our books were coming out. I might tell you further that Admiral Hayes, as well as the Naval Department, rode herd on everything I wrote. Sometimes we didn't agree. Now I wish there were some new Civil War jokes that I could tell you, but the centennial seems to have exhausted that field. So I'm going to have to tell you about my family before I go into my talk. I was born in Virginia. I came up on a farm down near Trevelyan Station. That's where you had your big cavalry battle in the summer of 1864. And I suppose that's where I began my interest in the Civil War. I remember going along the buggy roads there and picking up many balls just as seemed to be as numerous as, as pebbles. We even propped our doors open with cannonballs. My father got a sawmill to come in and cut some timber for him. It stayed about two days. And that time it had torn up every saw it had. Couldn't get cut down a tree without running into a mini ball or part of a cannonball. I used to sit at the feet of my grandmother, who was a young housewife during the war. And she told me that a deodorant manufacturer could have made a jillion dollars during the Civil War. She said you could smell either on north or south for months. <laughs> <laughs> then there was my maternal grandfather, who seems to have been a one-man army. I knew him fairly well, as young as I was, I do recall him fairly well. And I remember hearing him tell that he was at the Battle of the Crane. My ears and my eyes would get big as he was talking. He said that explosion went off and said I was blown up in the air. And as I was going up, I met my captain coming down, and my captain said, Graves, rise as soon as you hit the ground. <laughs> and he would swear that actually helped. Now, he also told me that he was up at Weston College, which is now Weston Lee University, at the time when General Lee was president there. That was between 65 and 7. And he said he met General Lee, and he said, Oh, General, I am so glad to see you. This is the first time I've seen you since Apple Mountain. And General Lee said, Graves, were you at Appomattox? And he said, yes, I was there, General. And he said, the General put his arm around my shoulder and said, well, my goodness, boy, if I'd have known you were there, I never would have surrendered. <laughs> <laughs> also, he also used to tell that after the surrender of Appomattox, he and another fellow started walking toward Lynchburg. And on the way, they met another Confederate soldier going toward Appomattox. And they stopped and they said, well, you might as well go on back, said, Lee is surrounded. And he said, this fellow huffed up right away, and he said, the hell he has. And they said, yes, we know he has surrendered. We were there and we saw him. And said, the fellow argued with us for the longest kind of time, and we insisted we'd seen it, that the army was all broken up, and he might as well go home. And he said, not General Lee. And we said, yes, General Lee. He said, no. Not General Lee, it was that damn Rooney Lee. <laughs> now, I also have heard this story many times. I wasn't there to see it. But my grandfather became quite a character in the little Virginia town where we lived. Uh, the great town of Gordonsville. I know some of you have been there. Well, they had bar rooms back in these days. And they told a story about my grandfather coming into the bar room one day. And he had his left arm all crooked up in his side. And there happened to be a new bartender on duty that day. And the bartender served him his drink. He sat there, with, stood there with one hand and took his drink and started sipping. And probably he got a cheroot out of his pocket and lit it 
all with one hand, stuck the match on his thumbnail, stood there, puffing his cheroot and sipping his drink. But then he had the second drink. And finally, the bartender, who didn't know him from the side of a barn, as I say, he was new there that day, said to him, well, Grandfather, you show off a fine man. He said, you get along mighty well. You, 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 you should be complimented. And my grandfather said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you seem to do so well. And my grandfather said, what do you mean, do so well? He said, well, you come in here when you're all deformed and got your arm twisted up in your side like that and said, it doesn't even slow you up a bit. He said, at that, my grandfather looked down and said, well, I'll be damned. Somebody stole my watermelon. <laughs> 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 one other story. I'm not trying to eulogize my grandfather. One other story I want to tell you, and this is one my father told me. My father was in the Spanish-American War, and he said when he came home, now this grandfather would have been, have been his, his father-in-law, because this was my maternal grandfather I'm talking about. Anyway, he said he came home from the Spanish-American War, and that they would sit there at night talking, and he said he never forget one evening they were sitting there talking, and, and uh, my grandfather gone up to the end of the hall and got his old musket out, and he brought it down, and he was spanging it while he talked there. He said, Presley, I said to him, Pa, tell me, did uh, you all have, did you give you all saltpeter during the Civil War? And said, seemed shake the old man. And he said, yeah, yes, they did. They did that first part of the war when they could give it to us. Why do you ask? He said, well, I just wondered, did it affect you any? He said, the old man raised his musket up and slid it down the barrel, and he said, well, I'll tell you this. It's beginning to. <laughs> now, getting into my topic, and this is where I'm walking on thin ice, I know. In the story of the Navy, there's a double-barrel example of American ingenuity on the part of the North, the rapid development of a fleet that became such a world power. And as I mentioned a while ago, I believe it bluffed England and France and kept them from taking part in the, in the war. Now on the part of the South, the ingenuity was exemplified in the way in which they waged a surprisingly destructive warfare with practically no navy at all. The South fought with riverboats converted into warships by strapping guns on their decks. But it also fought with some mighty formidable ironclads one of which was built in a cornfield. Now some of the most important naval developments in history came out of this war. Most of these were the work of the Southern, who turned to invention in an effort to offset the more powerful navy of the North. I refer, of course, to the water mine, or torpedo, the submarine, the torpedo boat, the ironclad, all Southern developments. The first ironclad to take to the water during the war, the Manassas, was developed down in New Orleans months before the Merrimack and the Monitor came into existence. Now, in discussing my subject, how not to start a war, you will understand that my focus is on Washington, D.C., for it was there the errors were made that allowed the South to develop into a religion. The first six months of the war, so far as the Union was concerned, was a Navy war. 
and the army had stacked arms and gone home months before the last ship, the CSS Shenandoah, surrendered the first week in November 1865. More than once the Navy saved the day. Twice the Union Army, fighting along the upper reaches of the Mississippi River, was saved by gunboats in the early months of the war. The Navy captured Fort Henry, the first step in the campaign to close the Mississippi. The Army was not even there. The Navy captured New Orleans and turned it over to the Army for occupation. When the Federals pushed up the Mississippi, the Red, the Yazoo, and the other rivers of the South, it was not the men on foot and horseback that the Confederates feared so much as it was the gunboats. The gunboats had paid no attention to alligators, snakes, or anything else other than the rebel ironclads and water mines. Now the particular part of the war I should like to talk to you about tonight concerns the beginning, as I mentioned, the months immediately prior to and following the firing on Fort Sumter. Never in history, certainly in American history, had there been such a period of indecision, of vacillation. Who was to blame? President Buchanan, mainly. But some of his lieutenants and others in the top bracket also were guilty of mistakes, and Abraham Lincoln made a while. Now the first mistake committed by the federal government, if it was determined to shut down on states' rights, was in allowing the South to build its power into that of a belligerent. The South was an agricultural area of nine million persons, a peaceful area, but an area in which every man took pride in riding and shooting and in what he, and, uh, in what he looked upon as his just principles. It had no army, no navy. Its troops got together like Minutemen. This happened first in South Carolina, when Governor Pickens called for 10,000 soldiers between the ages of 18 and 45. Now with the exception of the minor exercise that had gotten in the Mexican War, the United States Navy had been at peace for nearly 50 years. But even at that, the federal government had enough power at hand to have protected its forts and arsenals had it been of a mind to. Its navy, for example, was made up of 90 vessels of all classes, carrying 2,415 guns and 7,600 men, exclusive of officers and marines. It also had an abundant fleet of merchant bottoms from which to draw reserve. The South had nothing of the South. It had not even any seamen to speak of, for its people were not given to seafaring pursuit. It had no large force of skilled mechanics. It had only two navy yards, one at Pensacola, Florida, and one at Norfolk, Virginia, both in Union hands at the start of the trouble. It had only three rolling mills, two in Tennessee and one in Georgia, the latter unfitted for heavy work. There were virtually no machine shops which could turn out superior workmanship. The sole foundry capable of casting heavy guns was the Tredegar Ironworks at Richmond. And worst of all, the only raw material were the trees standing in the fire. Iron would have to be a Yet despite its superior power 
the federal government stood by and watched the South seize ships and take over guns and other equipment from the arsenals and armories in the southern states. Now, it's fanciful thinking, I realize, but this perhaps would not have happened had the inauguration of our president at that time taken place in early January, as it does now, instead of on March 4th. James Buchanan's term had less than two months to run when the shooting began at Charleston, South Carolina on January the 9th, 61. The records show very clearly that he wanted things to remain peaceful until he got out of office. He even issued instructions that there was to be no collision of arms while the peace negotiations were in progress at Washington. And at that very moment, the Southerners were seizing public property, especially arsenals, and they were setting their design on forts within the secession area. The situation became serious first in South Carolina, which seceded December 20th, 1860, and which made no effort to hide the fact that it was planning to take over Fort Sumter. It was very obvious with what it had in mind. Now, on December 30th, 1860, General Winfield Scott, the Union's Commander-in-Chief, asked President Buchanan for permission to send as secretly as possible, and they're his words, 250 recruits from New York Harbor, as well as extra muskets, ammunition, and subsistence stores, to reinforce Fort Sumter. He also asked for a sloop of war and a cutter for this purpose. His request was granted, and Scott ordered the men on board the Brooklyn, lying off Fort Monroe on the Virginia coast. This was a modern ship. She was armed with 25 guns. But all at once, Scott rescinded this order and directed that the men be put on board the merchant ship Star of the West up in New York Harbor. There seems to have been two reasons for this change. First, he feared the Brooklyn could not get over the bar at Charleston. Now, certainly the Naval Department had records which would have told him about this. And secondly, he was doubtful about taking soldiers away from Fort Monroe, so near the bed of secession. In agreeing to this change, Buchanan used the word reluctant, though I doubt that he actually was, for the action was in line with the policy of his pacification. So the troops were moved on board the Star of the West, a vessel used by the M.O. Roberts shipping line between New York and Havana. It had not even one gun on board for its defense. Well, I'm sure you know the story of what happened. This ship left New York on January the 5th, and at dawn on January the 9th, it started up the channel into Charleston Harbor. The Southerners were waiting, and they immediately began throwing shells at her from a battery on Morris Island, a little battery of guns manned by boys from the Citadel Academy of Charleston. 17 shots were fired, and three of them struck the ship, doing some damage but injuring no one. Now what might have happened had the Brooklyn gone as originally planned, or any other ship that could have crossed the bar at Charleston, records indicate the Brooklyn could have entered the harbor. At any rate, 
This attack on the Star of the West was hailed by the public and the press as the beginning of the war, but the administration held back. So the first era, an era of unused might, we have to mark up against Scott. The Union's second mistake was of a different nature than the first. Three days after the Star of the West incident, the Navy Yard of Pensacola, Florida, was surrendered without a shot. Uh, around 500 men, armed only with muskets and pistols, marched on the yard on the state, January the 12th, and demanded it in the name of the state of Florida. For standing by close, as the United States flag waving over the yard was lowered, where the steamer Wyandotte, carrying four 32-pounders and two Dalgan howitzers, with 72 men as crew, and the store ship supply, carrying two 32-pounders and a crew of 36 men. On duty in the yard were 38 Marines and 80 men in ordinary. Also at the yard were a saluting battery of 22 18-pounders and eight 32-pounders, two 8-inch guns, and a howitzer. Now these guns were serviceable and could have been made efficient. The magazine had from 400 to 500 barrels of powder in it, as well as a number of large 8 and 10 inch shells. Now all of this to hold off 500 men. The goat in this case was Captain James Armstrong, commander of the yard. A court of inquiry was held to investigate the surrender, and he was found covered. But he pointed out in his defense that he had been left without any instructions except the following included in a brief letter he had received on January the 3rd. This is quoted from the instructions. Be vigilant to protect the public property. The commanding officer at Fort Barrancas has been instructed to consult with you and you will cooperate with him. Now, they were his instructions. Armstrong wrote, um, in judging of this trans transaction, it must be remembered that this was the first time in the history of our country that hostility to the government ever appeared in armed force, organized under state authority, and acting under the form of law. Nor can we ignore the fact that from the commencement of these difficulties, the President's messages and the whole tone of public opinion, as expressed through the various channels of communication, spoke with one voice, that civil war should be avoided at all costs, and that the spilling of blood in such a strife would obliterate forever all hope of restoring the government to its integrity. To condemn this act of mine would be to reprobate the whole course of the government from the commencement of these troubles to the present time. And that was his defense. Now this second era, I think we can safely chalk up to the administration, to James Buchanan, for not assuming a firm stand. Now we come to the third mistake. On April the 1st, 1864, Abraham Lincoln did a strange thing, and Gideon Wells, his neighbor secretary, who should have been fully apprised, knew nothing about it. Out from the White House went a flock of notes, most of them by mail, but some by telegraph. And one of these directed the steamer Powhatan, then at Brooklyn and just back from overseas duty, one of the most powerful ships in the Union Navy, to be fitted out for service under sealed orders 
at the earliest possible moment. Another ordered Lieutenant David D. Porter to take command of the ship and to proceed to Pensacola Harbor, there to prevent southern troops on the mainland from reaching Fort Pickens over on Santa Rosa Island. Wells, in the meantime, was going ahead with plans for a sea expedition to Fort Sumter. It was scheduled to begin April the 6th, and directions were sent for the Pocahontas at Norfolk, the Pony at Washington, the Harriet Lane at New York, and the Powhatan at Brooklyn to be fitted out to take part in it. Well, here was evidence that something was fishy. Commodore Andrew H. Foote, commander of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, was the first person puzzled by it. He had a message from the president ordering the Powhatan to Pensacola and a message from the secretary of the Navy ordering it to Charleston. He believed Wells's order was phony because no department head in his right mind would attempt to countermand directions in writing signed by the president. So he wired the secretary for an explanation. Wells went to see Lincoln. And Lincoln bared the whole thing. It seems the president had been the goat of advice by Secretary of State Stewart, who appears to have had the idea he was running the administration at that time. Now, Stewart favored reinforcing Fort Pickens over Fort Sumter. He was getting his advice from Montgomery C. Mills, who had been called up from Pensacola to finish the dome and extensions of the United States Capitol. Stewart didn't have much faith in old General Scott and was relying for advice on the much younger Meigs, later, you know, the Quartermaster General. Meigs told him any move on Fort Pickens should be kept in absolute secrecy, for if news of it leaked, the Southerners would capture the fort before it could be reinforced. Stewart took him over to the White House and they laid the plan before Lincoln, who went along with it completely. Not even the secretaries of war and navy were told. Funds for the expedition, expedition were to be supplied by the State Department, that's Seward's Department. Now when the conflict involving the Powhatan was brought to Lincoln's attention, he sent for Seward and told him he'd have to give up the ship. Well, the Powhatan already had sailed, and a steamer had to be chartered to chase her down. But when overtaken, her commander, David D. Porter, who figured very largely later on in the war, having the president's written directions to support him, took it upon himself to ignore this countermand of all. Strangely enough, Gustavus Fox, later Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who was put in charge of the Fort Sumter expedition, went all the way down to Charleston thinking the Powhatan was to support him. He had five other ships and three tugs. On the way down to Charleston, these vessels ran through about three days of gales, and as a consequence, some of them never got there. It was the morning of the 13th, the day following the firing on Fort Sumter, that Fox learned the Powhatan was not coming. He said he felt like he'd been stabbed in the back. He had everything at hand in readiness to go in toward Fort Sumter, everything except the important item of power. The Pocahontas had arrived that morning, but this ship had not the powerful armament of the power tank. Fox was so deeply wounded he would have thrown his glove at a guard. As for our expedition, he concluded, 
somebody's influence has made it ridiculous. That somebody, in his estimation, of course, was Secretary of State Stewart. But in all fairness, I think we should divide the blame in this instance among Seward, Lincoln, and Ford. Lincoln made the mistake of not at least taking his cabinet members into his conference. And Porter made the mistake of ignoring the orders rushed out to him by a chartered steamer that would at the last minute have sent the power tan to Fort Sumter instead of to Fort Pickett. All right, we come now to mistake number four, perhaps the gravest of the lot. It concerned the Gosport Navy Yard at Norfolk, Virginia, one of the largest in the nation at that time. They undergoing repair with several vessels the most important of which was the Merrimack, the frigate that uh, converted into an ironclad and renamed the Virginia, later Fort Demont. It seems the Union Navy Department didn't awaken to the danger of losing the yard until the eve of the firing on Fort Sumter. The Commandant, veteran Commodore Charles S. McCauley, found himself in a dilemma. In one order, he was told to remove the Merrimack and other vessels to safety. And in the next, he was cautioned against any act that might cause alarm and induce Virginia, still undecided about secession, to join the Confederacy. Now, Gideon Wells, Secretary of the Union Navy, seems to have been slow in making up his mind about preserving the Navy Yard for the federal government. In late March, for example, he ordered the massive Sloop of War Cumberland to be stationed there to check any disorder. This was a veritable fortress, queen of anything that fell within range of her guns, including both the towns of Norfolk and Portsmouth. She had a heavy armament, and she had a crew of 300. But as soon as Wells became alarmed, instead of sending more might, he sent down the Navy's chief engineer, Next came Commander James Orland with instructions to transfer the Merrimack to Philadelphia. And then finally was sent Captain Hiram Pauling on board the sloop of war Pawnee with instructions to McCauley to destroy, if necessary, all the public property that could, be, could not be removed. Well, McCauley, in the meantime, was getting panicked. He was convinced he could not hold the yard against the Confederates even though the Cumberland was standing by fully armed. He believed that thousands of Virginia troops were pouring into North. Clearly, he could hear trains running into the station over there, over in town, followed by the cheering of what he thought were soldiers as they alighted. Now, not until later would it be known that this was a trick of Billy Mahone, president of the Norfolk and Petersburg Rail Railroad, and later, you know, a Confederate general. The trains McCauley could hear shoving in and out of the station were loaded with citizens who had been instructed to hoop and holler as loud as they could. So what happened? Commander James Alden hurries back to Washington and reports to Wells that McCauley seemed stupefied and that he was completely under the control of the secessionists. Wells then asked Winfield Scott to send troops to Norfolk but Scott at first refused, maintaining they would be going into enemy country and would all be captured. Finally, he did consent for a regiment of Massachusetts soldiers on duty at Fort Monroe to be drawn into service. 
Now these soldiers arrived at, in the Pawnee several hours after the scuttling of the ships at the Navy Yard had been started. But they did get there in time to help with the removal of some of the public property, archives and books and papers, and even some of the gold from the customs house at North. Then the yard was set apart. Now this yard represented an investment to the U.S. government of about $10 million. It was three quarters of a mile long and a quarter mile wide, had a granite dry dock, and was covered with machine shops, storehouse, ship houses, sail law, rigger's law, and barracks. In addition to the Mer Merrimack, lying at the yard were 10 other ships. Some of these armed with as many as 80 guns. When the Confederates moved in after the Cumberland had sailed away from the Navy Yard, they found six ships had been burned to the water's edge and sunk, but three had gone down with no fire damage. All could be raised. The dry dock was intact. Some of the buildings had escaped the fire. 4,000 shells, a large number of small arms, and several brass houses had been thrown into the harbor and could be recovered. More than 1,000 guns <coughs> from 11 inch to 32 pounders were left, some of them in battle. There were large stores of powder, provisions, and uniforms. I believe this was the richest haul that the South ever made. The guns alone were our most important price. Without them, not for perhaps a year, would the South have been able to arm some of its foes. These guns would show up in many places, 203 in North Carolina, 52 in Tennessee, 21 in Louisiana, 40 in South Carolina and Georgia, 52 in Virginia. Gunboats pushing up the Red River in the west found them as high upstream as they were able to go. Some, bound for Little Rock, were captured at Dubois Bluff on the White River. Others barked with vehemence at Arkansas Post. They did their job well, though they never got credit for it, in the same degree as did another prize captured at the Norfolk Navy Yard, the Merrimack. Now where does it blame for this fourth era belong? I should say the lion's share lies with Gideon West. Though we could go beyond him to his superior, President Lincoln, the Commander-in-Chief of the Navy's, Navy's uh, military forces. Now let's analyze these four mistakes. All of them were Navy errors, and all of them stemmed from reluctance to use force. It was a case in which the Goliath stood by and let the David build into something that represented strength. What would have been the effect if the North had coerced the South in the beginning, kept the public property in Southern states out of the hands of the Confederates, blocked Southern forts, and thrown its strength into the key points of resistance? North, Charleston, Pensacola, New Orleans. I won't try to answer that question, but it's something to think about. It is obvious that by not doing so, the South was allowed to get a foothold and to make the most of it. A foothold that brought victories for the Confederacy during the first two years of the war. Now I told you the American fleet at the beginning of the war consisted of 90 vessels of all classes. 41 of these were propelled by steam. The home squadron at the moment was considered overly large. 
It was made up of 22 vessels, 15 of them steamers. 23 ships were on foreign service in Mediterranean, Brazilian, East Indian, Pacific, and African waters. They were considered more or less out of circulation, for in that day of no submarine cable, orders for their return took quite some time to dispatch. But just remember what was at home. The Powhatan, the Pocahontas, the Brooklyn, the Cumberland, to name just some of the most popular. The South had nothing to send against them. And remember the veritable fleet that was scuttled at North. It all seems to have been a comedy of errors brought about by reluctance to use force for political reasons, the force that Abraham Lincoln finally employed and which won the war. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. I look in your faces and I wonder whether you agree with me or you don't agree with me. So I sit down in trepidation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Excellent presentation. Uh, before we get, I'd like to let you think about your questions for a moment. I'd like to call Chuck Falkenberg, our large chairman, up for the presentation. Mr. Jones, uh, in your introductory remarks, you warned us about speakers who possibly might bore their audience. You certainly didn't do that to us tonight. You also talked about being thrown bodily out after we listened to you. We certainly have no intention of throwing you out. Fortunately, your reputation has been exceeded by your presentation this evening. And on behalf of the roundtable, I'd like to present to you this little award for gallant service as our speaker of the evening. Thank you so much. set, and I have read them very carefully. This is one of my favorites. I am a great admirer of Lincoln, and also of Ulysses Grant. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I want to thank Chuck for reading that speech exactly the way I wrote it. <laughs> uh, now, I open the meeting for questions. Joe Eisenhower. And your third premise there. The, the captain of the power had sailed under sealed orders. Why was he wrong in refusing to uh, obey the second set of orders? Well, uh, as I explained, uh, the Powhatan was a powerful ship, and this Powhatan was going to Fort Pickens unless he countermanded those orders or followed uh, the orders from Washington to countermand. But he had uh, the written instructions from Lincoln to send the Powhatan on to Fort Pickens, and therefore he thought he should follow the President's written instructions rather than uh, do just the opposite of it. Wouldn't you? Well, I think I would have, yes. Uh, I would have been scared to death if I'd gotten the letter. <laughs> it wasn't a mistake. But uh, it, it developed it was a mistake, because I think had the Powhatan gone to Fort Sumter, you would have had the power that was needed, and Gustavus Fox could have gone in, as was well he didn't. On that same order, Pat, are you, uh, how do you stand on the fact that the report that Seward hoodwinked Lincoln into signing these orders with something covering them? Now, we have only uh, rather secondary 
evidence on that. Uh, I'd like to ask that about the Powhatan incident. And I also would like to ask, in addition to the Powhatan mistake, uh, if you probably remember, one of the tugboats that could have brought small boats in to relief of Sumter was missing. Then, what about the lack of coordination? Well, later we had fine coordination between the Army and Navy. What about the lack of signal flags? Uh, Fox did not have the Army code, and Anderson did not have the Navy code. They could not communicate. Yes, I, there was quite a bit of confusion there in the beginning. Uh, the telegram I understand that you mentioned, I understand was a victim of the gale, Mr. Anderson. But, uh, but that tug had made a big difference, though. It would have made a big difference. Yes, indeed. They got separated from the storm. What about the, the uh, sewer incident, uh, the covering of the document? Um, now, you tell me the proof of it, or? Yeah, do you have any proof of it? I don't. Well, it's second. What I had to follow was what was written on it at the time, which would be secondary. I don't That's have right. the primary source. I have a question. How much of the, of, uh, the mistakes were laid, could be laid to the intrigue of Navy officers about the defect to the South in this period? Of uh, putting, uh, slowing down uh, work of restoring some of the ships and so I think there's quite a bit of it, don't you, Pete? Well, uh, from those that there were, but there weren't too many that defected. In the early part of the war in Washington, D.C., I know the newspapers showed very strong, if you read those papers that period, that there were so many relatives tossing the off and off the south that. Uh, but very few, up. including Admiral Lee, did not defect. That's right. Pat, I understand that the Merrimack was inoperative because of its engines were going under repair. One question I've always had in the back of my mind, why couldn't the Cumberland tow it out? That was well, a big enough ship to do it. Certainly could. That's what I try to say. I think that was one of the mistakes that it didn't put. I have one more question, which is different. Uh, you mentioned the term that the Navy should have gone down and blockade the ports. Uh, at one time, I can't remember what speaker brought it up, they mentioned something about this was one of Lincoln's greatest mistakes by saying that to blockade the port instead of just closing them. Because blockading them gave the South a belligerent status and allowed the other nations to actually come into the ports if they could. Could I have your statement on that? Yes, I think unquestionably there was some uh, indecision there in the beginning about the blockade and finally it was ironed out and the blockade was fully established, and as soon as it was fully established, the South began to suffer. I was talking the other night about uh, one grave mistake that the South made. In the early part of the war, if they had just uh, loaded all of that cotton, all of its cotton on ships and sent it over to England, and put it on reserve over there, it would have been fine. In the later part of the war, when they needed the credit that that cotton would have given it, and all the troops are coming in and capturing that cop, taking it over. And so couldn't get it done. Now, a few of the blockade runners did get over with cotton, but just think of the, of the vast store of cotton that went into Union hands. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I was here some 12 years or so ago, and at that time, I believe I did talk on the road. I wasn't around then. Now, I'll tell you this, I'd much rather talk about the Moorsman and the Raiders than I would about the sea, because I'm much more interested. Well, I'm going to quarrel with your topic. All right. Which, uh, as I understood, was how not to start a war. 
Uh, and yet, your whole criticism was about the side which didn't indeed start the war. Uh, the South started the war. Uh, uh, now, uh, your, your point of view is strictly, however, from the point of view of the North. And I agree to all the comments you made that these things were indeed mistakes from the point of view of a Northerner, like myself. But my question gets to this. If these mistakes had not have been made, do you feel, A, that the war could have been prevented, or B, that it would just have meant that the North would have won the war uh, quicker and with more casualties and less trouble? Well, I know this is a uh, subject that is not a debate, but I frankly believe that if the South had been coerced in the beginning, that it could not have developed. I don't see how it could possibly have developed the army that it did get. It didn't have a navy. Very little Navy, even if they wind up. But it did have a pretty good army at one time, and I don't think it could have done gotten that army together had the North come in, the Union come in and taken over as it should have done. Now, I agree with you about the verb in my topic. I should have said how not to get started in the war. <laughs> 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 Tom? Yeah. I have a question regarding the North of placing the Navy under command of the Army in the uh, river campaigns there. What was the logic behind that? I never could quite figure that out. Well, that was a mistake. I don't know if Pete agreed with me, but that was a mistake, and it took them a year or so to find it out. Yeah. And then they did change it to the Navy as it should have been. And that is a responsibility for, the, for that fleet. Well, it wasn't because that they felt that the inland waters were not to be considered uh, Would you say that, or, or jealousy well, between Yes, there were several things involved. You're right. It's not to be the domain, and partly the naval officers were to blame. These were all high seas officers. Many of them didn't want to fight on the inland waters, didn't know about inland waters, realized the Army would take a major role. And uh, the whole thing was, I agree, a dreadful mistake. Is this why that clock book was assigned to uh, the... Uh, well, I won't agree that Mr. Foote was a clock. <laughs> uh, any man that was responsible for eliminating Grog and the name of the But the point is that even after that mistake, and Pat, you didn't answer, I wanted to ask this other question. And I think you brought up, even after this mistake, there really was beautiful cooperation between the Army and the Navy, not only on the rivers, but what about the uh, landing operations along the coast? That's right. It was close cooperation after they learned it out. I frankly think there was some jealousy too. Oh, sure. And uh, that that was behind much of what Well, you support his theory that the book wasn't a plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I frankly, when I was working on the See, I, I debated in my mind whether or not he was. I can't say that I admired him as much as, as I did. Well, they had a good man like Rogers down there in Cairo putting together this thing, and they sent Foot down there, and all he managed to do was get himself into one jam after another, plus getting shot, and then uh, when uh, Pope uh, insists uh, uh, on help to bypass island number 10, well, to answer your question, I think the ironclads uh, established their value during the war. 
foot was opposed to iron plans. He thought that the wood would work. You were right. You were right about Rogers, but Rogers is one of those guys that caused the inter service difficulties. Right. Bring an officer. I want to make one statement. It's a damn good thing they didn't have an air force. Jealous than a woman than the Navy. 
I'd just like to make a, a couple of comments on this thing. It so happened that Captain Winslow was uh, in command of one of the ironclads in the Mississippi and ran aground and then attempting to get it off, the cable broke and a portion of the cable went into the muscle of his upper arm and so he was invalided out of his command there and consequently later on was able to command the Kearsarge against the Alabama. Uh, secondly, uh, I have on good authority from a direct descendant of Gideon Wellis that it is not Wells, it's Wellis. I'm glad you, I never heard it called Wells, have you ever heard it? Not until Miner told me some years ago. <laughs> I was called on that by one by direct descent. Well, I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know it. Mr. Jones, I'm going to go a little far afield and just draw on your knowledge of uh, the Civil War at the sea. I've got a pet project, uh, the Ram Stonewall. Can you tell me what it did? Or All I know is it surrendered. Now, I don't have the complete details on it. It's been about 10 years since I worked in these records. But uh, my recollection is that it came in so late in the war that it didn't serve much purpose at all. I've got a model going on it. I'm trying to find out something. It was just late, late. It was late getting on the scene. Was any more questions? I just want to tell you, gentlemen, that when I came up to the table tonight, I was handed this card from our friend J.M. Johnson, down in Richmond. He's a grand old man. I've known him for many years. And he says, please tell Pat Jones the Virginia Prison Civil War Roundtable is still hoping he will visit them can guarantee 100% attendance <laughs> and that no one will work, walk, walk out on it. I want to tell you, he's been trying now for two or three years to get me to come down. I guess one of these days I will go down. But I've always been afraid that I'll get down there before that group and I'll blurt out something like, I'm glad to see so many of you here. <laughs>